Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's been our sincere desire from the very beginning, from the, the moment of the kidnapping, that we do everything possible to comply with these demands. We want the mother back. And yet we had to have the reality that this was definitely a kidnapping with wrongful intent and purpose. There were so many parts of that story that were unbelievable. What, who would in their right mind go to an airport, dye their hair in the bathroom to mail a letter? You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos... You can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. Seventy-one-year-old Robert Heron lived in Jackson, Mississippi, with his seventy-three-year-old wife, Annie Laurie. Annie was from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She had grown up on 14th Street and according to her cousin, she was one of the most popular, beautiful girls in Tuscaloosa, outstanding in every way. Robert and Annie had met while they were students at the University of Alabama. While at university, she had worked as the women's editor for the school newspaper, Crimson White. Robert had also worked on the paper too. In 1940, Robert and Annie would marry. After the wedding, they moved to Jackson, Mississippi. During World War II, Robert joined the United States Navy, and upon his return, he worked for the U.S. Gas Company until 1955. The pair had two children together, a son, Robert Jr., and a daughter, Laurie. Robert Heron was one of Mississippi's wealthiest residents. He was worth roughly $200 million. He was in charge of Mississippi Valley Gas Company, the largest gas distribution company in the state, Lamar Life Corporation, the second biggest insurance company, and the second biggest bank, Trustmark National Bank. Annie was frail, weighing 120 pounds and standing at 5 foot 4, suffering from both arthritis and scoliosis. But she didn't let any of that stop her from being a huge part of her community. She devoted much of her time to various civic causes, making her popular and well-liked. She was the president of both the Jackson Junior League and the Jackson Opera Guild, was the co-chair of the Mississippi Arts Festival and the patron of the Jackson Symphony. She and her husband also funded scholarships and colleges. Another one of Robert's business ventures was being the president of School Pictures, which sold franchises across the country. People would buy the franchise and then take and publish children's picture day photographs. The business ran into problems. In the early 1980s, they filed lawsuits against 12 franchise owners from across eight different states. They were owed money, and so started legal action to recover it. July 26, 1988, began as any other. Although he was in his 70s, 
Robert would often wake up at 4am to go to work. Both he and Annie were up early and the pair had breakfast together, just as they had done for the past 48 years. Every two weeks, Annie would host a bridge club at the house, 139 Woodland Drive, and on this day, this is exactly what happened. Bridge began at 10.15 and went on for several hours. The group spent their time playing, talking and eating blueberry ice cream cake. At 2.30pm her last guest left and the housekeeper left at 3. 90 minutes later at 4.30pm Robert came home and saw her car was still parked on the drive. After checking the house however, she wasn't there. He assumed that she had gone with her friends However, by 7.30, she still hadn't come home. He called his son-in-law to help find her. They searched the house and the outside, but she was nowhere to be found. Robert called around other friends and family to see if they had seen or heard from her. Nobody had. She was a creature of habit, which made her sudden disappearance even more unusual. She always took her handbag with her whenever she went out. Worryingly, her bag and shoes were by her reading chair, as was the paper and her glasses. At 9.49pm, Robert called the police. They quickly descended on the scene. A sinister discovery was made. A letter by the door. It had been written on a typewriter, was littered with grammatical errors, and was directly addressed to Robert. It read... Robert Heron. Put these people back in the shape they was in before they got mixed up with school pictures. Pay them whatever damages they want, and tell them all this so they can know what you are doing, but don't tell them why you are doing it. Do this before ten days pass. Don't call the police. If any is dead, pay his children. It then went on to list twelve names... They were the people that school pictures had taken legal action against regarding the unpaid debts. Eleven of them were living, and one had since died. The contents of the letter made it clear. His wife had been abducted. As it was apparent that the kidnapping was linked to Robert's business, the police needed to know of any enemies, and any that held a deep enough grudge that they would hurt his frail wife. Jackson Chief of Police J.R. Black said, The note said not to call the police. However, Mr. Heron notified the police prior to the note being discovered. What was unusual about the letter was that the kidnapper was not demanding money for himself. He was demanding payment for other people. It didn't give a figure that needed to be paid. The lawsuits had been filed from the county court in Mississippi. Their names were a matter of public record and were easily available to the public, meaning the kidnapper didn't necessarily have to be one of the people listed on the ransom letter. Their son, Robert Heron Jr., said, We wanted to comply. We wanted to do everything we could to get Mother back. Searches throughout the house continued. Drops of blood were found on the carpet, alongside a smear of blood on the front door. It was discovered that the blood type was the same as Annie's. Investigators theorised that she had been overpowered by someone and potentially hit over the head with something. Something that the smeared blood also pointed to. Alongside having arthritis and scoliosis, Annie suffered with a chronic intestinal disease called elitis, which causes inflammation of the small intestine. If she failed to take her medication, 
she would die within a matter of days. Her medication was still in the bathroom. The case involved multiple law enforcement agencies and they called on the help of the FBI that very night. Across the investigation, more than 100 FBI agents were brought in. The FBI contacted attorney James Tucker, who could advise them on the complex legal issues as the case continued to unfold. As day broke, evidence technicians and FBI officers were still trawling through the house, gathering as much evidence as possible, including handwriting samples and notepads, to see if the letter had been written using paper from inside the home. It also meant they could rule out any handwriting if more communications came through. They had officers tap the phone, just in case the kidnappers called. Due to the nature of the case, the media put a 24-hour blackout on the story, and her abduction was not reported on. 36 hours had now passed since the abduction, and police were hopeful that the test carried out on the ransom letter would give them a solid lead. The paper didn't match any paper found inside the Heron residence. They also compared the typeface of the letter to every single typewriter manufactured in the 20th century. Tests confirmed that it was a royal typewriter that had been made between 1912 and 1927. No other information or evidence could be garnered from the letter, including fingerprints. One of the Heron's neighbours, a doctor who lived down the street, reported to investigators that he had seen a white van parked near his house. He said he initially thought nothing more of it, but found it strange when he came home later and it was still parked in the same spot. He approached the driver of the van, who was reading a map, and asked if he needed anything. The driver was agitated and responded by asking if it was illegal to park in the neighbourhood. A few minutes later, the van drove off. Another neighbour also had something interesting to tell the police. Three months earlier in April, they too had seen a white van driving around. Both times, the van would have had a clear view of Robert and Annie's house. This neighbour found the van to be so out of place and odd that they made a note of the licence plate. Officers ran checks on the plates, but discovered it had been stolen from a vehicle at New Orleans Airport. So this lead went nowhere. So determined were the FBI to find Annie, agents would actually move in with Roberts and live with him as the investigation continued. The police asked school pitchers to go into their files and look at the records of the 12 people listed on the letter. They sent letters to the 11 surviving people, asking what monetary damages they had and what, if anything, they wanted. They only got a handful of responses, with those who replied saying they didn't want anything. Within three days of the abduction, the FBI reached out to officers from areas that the 11 living people listed on the letter resided in to gather more information, and they began conducting surveillance operations on them. They needed to know if any of them had been in the area at the same time as the van or kidnapping. On the 3rd of August, the police made an announcement. They were looking for a Newton Alfred Wynn in connection with her disappearance. Wynne had been one of the names on the letter. Neighbours said that Wynne generally did match the driver of the van. And that very day, he went in front of a grand jury and said he had no knowledge of what had happened to Annie. The investigations continued. As the days passed without any more leads, 
agents spoke to Robert Heron, and it was agreed that a press conference would be held. More than ten days after her abduction, Robert made an appeal to the kidnappers. My name is Robert Heron. My wife, Anna Laurie, was taken from our home over ten days ago. My children and I have done everything humanly possible to obtain her release. Like any businessman, I've made decisions which may appear to others as unfeeling. But those appearances are just not true. Moreover, those business decisions were mine, not my wife. She had absolutely nothing to do with it. My children and I appeal to whomever has my wife that they may say that she may be safe to return to us. Thank you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The story quickly became news across the country, with major news outlets including the New York Times, Time Magazine and the Washington Post reporting on it. Following the press conference, the hope was that the kidnapper would be spurned into giving more information on how Annie could be released. It seemed to work. August 15th, 1988. A letter arrived, postmarked from the 12th of August, from Atlanta, Georgia. The letter was dated August 10th. It said, Bob, if you don't do what these people want you to do, they are going to seal me up in the cellar of this house with only a few jugs of water. Please save me. Annie Laurie. FBI expert said it was her handwriting. The language on the letter was unusual. Family members said she would have used the word basement and not cellar and bottles of water instead of jugs of water, making it apparent that the letter had been dictated to her. But this threw up another problem. If the wording of the letter had been decided upon by someone else, they had no way of knowing if the date of the letter was even accurate. It again was vague, and so in a desperate attempt to comply... Robert Heron had his lawyers find out exactly how much the people in the lawsuits had been sued for. He then sent them all checks. The amount paid out totaled $931,000. Half of the checks would be returned. With every check, he added a note begging for his wife's return. This lead would also go nowhere. Dr. Rodrigo Galvez, a pathologist and psychiatrist, was also brought on board to analyse the letter and help investigators determine what kind of person they were dealing with. He said, I'm absolutely sure she is dead. 
They got in touch with the behavioural science units where profilers determined the characteristics of people to help officers in their investigations. One of the profilers who examined the ransom letter confirmed that whoever had taken her was likely one of the people listed on the letter. The grammatical errors the profiler believed was a deliberate attempt by the kidnapper to throw investigators off the scent, as was the old typewriter. One particular phrase stood out to the profiler, pay them whatever damages they want. The use of the word damages was odd. It's a legal term indicating whoever had written it had some sort of legal background or knowledge of the law. According to the profiler, this was revenge against Robert Heron. Whoever the kidnapper was, they were paranoid and willing to go to any lengths, including murder. It was most likely a white, middle-aged male, someone working alone, or if they were working with someone, this man would have been in charge. Tom Montgomery, a special agent in Jacksonville, was drafted in to look at the one lawyer on the letter, Newton Alfred Wynne. After conducting the routine background checks, it was discovered that he had no criminal record. As part of the legal action taken by school pictures for the unpaid debts, Wynne had been ordered to pay $153,883 in 1984. Wynne either wouldn't or couldn't pay. So Robert Heron had gone back to court to seize property to pay off the debt. March 11th, 1989. Finally, the news came through that everyone had been waiting for. The FBI had made an arrest in a car park in Deland, Florida. Newton Alfred Wynne was taken into custody. But who was he? And what had led to this? Over the last few months, the FBI had been tracking him and had launched an elaborate undercover operation to catch him. He had been on their radar from very early on. Newton Alfred Wynne was a 65-year-old civil lawyer from St. Petersburg, Florida, who lived alone above his office. Officers had gone to interview him initially, and he said he had nothing to do with the case, and gave an alibi for the day of the kidnapping, saying he had been in a bar with a sex worker. He said he had called one of his paralegals and asked him to bring the money to the bar so he could go home with the sex worker. The paralegal arrived and handed the money over. Wynne said he didn't know either the sex worker's name, nor the bar they had been in. The next day they visited the paralegal, who confirmed Wynne's version of events. The paralegal said he too didn't know the name of the bar. Wynne had paid for the paralegal's training, and the paralegal was working on a very small salary, leaving officers to believe that there was a great deal of loyalty between them. Despite their protestations, agents were doubtful that they were being honest. The paralegal said that the issues between Wynne and school pictures had started around seven years before, when they had foreclosed on him. To try and avoid his debts, Wynne had tried to declare bankruptcy. Not once, but three times. A court order was issued to pay off the debts. and US Marshal seized items in stock, including his prized car. Three weeks before Annie Laurie Heron had been abducted, Wynne had been told about an eviction hearing, but he put his foot down and said he wasn't going to leave. The paralegal said that becoming involved in school pictures had ruined Wynne's life. 
They pulled information on the paralegal's vehicle and vehicles that belonged to friends and associates of Wynne. They found that the paralegal had a white van registered to him, a white van that Wynne had used. An agent went to speak with the previous owner of the van. She revealed that the person who had bought the van was Wynne. She described his behaviour as strange, and he told her he didn't want his name linked to the van in any way, so she had left the buyer's name on the receipt blank. It was revealed that the van had been in a repair shop on the day Annie Laurie Heron had vanished. One week after the kidnapping, officers had the doctor who had seen the van driving around the area come to the station to see if he could pick out a photograph of the driver. He identified Newton Alfred Wynne. The other neighbour who had seen the van was also able to pick Wynne out as being the driver. They kept him under surveillance, hoping he would lead them to Annie Laurie Heron. When Robert Heron had sent the cheques out following the handwritten letter from Annie, according to Wynne's paralegal, when Wynne opened the cheque to the sum of around $145,000 and read the note begging for Annie's return, he responded saying, This is not what I wanted. What he wanted was his property back. Wynne sent the cheque back and added a note saying he hoped Robert would find his wife safe and well. Two and a half months after Annie's abduction, her case would be featured on the hit show, Unsolved Mysteries. After the episode went out, hundreds of tips began to come in, and one in particular stood out. An anonymous caller contacted the police, and told them that if a man called Newton Alfred Wynne was on the list, they needed to look at him. When agents realised she was a spiritual advisor, they weren't entirely sure but soon learned she had a strong reputation amongst law enforcement and had helped them before. She explained to them that she had met Wynne four years ago. He had sought her advice about the issues he was having with school pictures. She told him that the courts were the best way for him to pursue action against the company. He said he had already tried that. He said to her he wanted to abduct the company's head and hold them hostage until his demands were met. He said he was looking for an accomplice and called her six weeks later to ask if she would do it. She refused. She gave the agents the records she had for her meeting with Wynne. She also agreed that she would contact him, arrange a meeting and her office would be bugged. He agreed and the meeting took place in December. She explained to him that she had seen that Annie Laurie Heron had been kidnapped and asked if he had played any part in it. He denied it, saying he had changed his mind. As soon as he left the office, FBI agents were hot on his tail, but he didn't lead them to Annie. The FBI also found out that he was the owner of a cabin located in Swampland, and so they headed straight there, hoping they would find her. But she was nowhere to be found. The FBI searched other properties and swamps in the vicinity, but there was no trace of Annie Laurie Heron. Newton Alfred Wynne sent thousands of documents to the IRS and told them to search for any disputed financial documents. Attorney James Tucker would say that this appeared to be an attempt at intimidation. In amongst all the paperwork, something sinister was found. Letters talking about a kidnap and murder plot. The IRS informed the FBI immediately. 
They were sent between Wynn and his ex-girlfriend and detailed a plan to abduct and murder her former husband. They even made reference to using an old typewriter to type out the ransom letter. They went to talk to her and at first she denied any knowledge or involvement. She then came clean. She said that the plan to kill her ex-husband had been Wynne's idea and when she realised he wasn't joking, she ended their relationship. She said that she had last spoken to him on August 6, 1988, when he asked to meet with her in Deland, Florida. He asked her if she knew or thought she had been followed there, and he asked her if her car had been tapped. When she confirmed that she hadn't been followed, and the car wasn't bugged, Wynne offered her $500 to travel across state lines, to the state capital of Georgia, Atlanta. He wanted her to put a letter in the post for him. He had used gloves to remove a manila envelope from his pocket. This, he said, contained the letter to be mailed. It was wrapped in a grey napkin. Wynne told her to pay for a one-way flight to Georgia from Daytona Beach, in cash and to use an assumed name. She explained that he had told her to change her appearance once she got to Atlanta. She was to talk to nobody and take public transport instead of a taxi to a post office in East Point. He told her to book a flight back to a different airport in Florida, also to be paid in cash. He told her not to touch or even look at the letter. All she had to do was put it in the mailbox. Based on his instructions, she had even used a fake Scandinavian accent to avoid detection. Despite his orders, however, she had seen the address on the envelope when she posted the letter and was later able to confirm that the letter Robert had received from Annie was the one she had put in the post. This was just over two weeks after the kidnapping of Annie Laurie Heron. She told agents that she had got rid of the napkin on a deserted road and agreed to take them there. The chances of finding it there were slim, but unbelievably, the napkin was still there. His ex-girlfriend agreed to meet with him again at the request of the FBI she would be wearing a wire. They had told her to be more forthright with him and tell him that she knew she was now implicated in a crime. Wynne denied everything and made no mention of Annie or the plot. When he got out of the car, officers moved in and took him into custody. A search of his office was conducted and a vintage typewriter was found, but Tess determined it was not the one that had been used to write the ransom letter. It was believed that a different typewriter had been left at the office to confuse the investigation. In his office, they also found a business card for a car rental company. The company confirmed that he had rented white vans on three separate occasions. Whilst the dates of the rentals didn't match the day Annie was kidnapped, one of them did coincide with when the doctor had spoken to the man in the white van, who was parked near the Heron home. Wynne was held at the Simpson County Jail while he awaited trial. He refused to have the court appoint a lawyer, but said he couldn't afford one of his own. He told Magistrate John R. Countess III, I used to have some money. I have nothing now. Judge Countess told him, If I appoint you a lawyer, I'm going to appoint you one who will be competent and I believe will do you a good job. Judge Countess did appoint a local lawyer to advise Wynne, but he said he would represent himself. Judge Countess told him this was not a wise thing to do. Although he was a lawyer, he had never tried a federal criminal case. 
By this point, FBI agents still hadn't questioned him. Jackson FBI spokesman Jay Stewart Murphy said, We don't have a right to talk to him. He has a right to an attorney before he talks to anybody. He does not have an attorney appointed right now. It's kind of confusing. Judge Countess didn't set a bond for Wynn. Hines County District Attorney's Office said they were considering if it was possible to file capital murder charges, despite having no body. But this didn't happen. The federal trial began in Mississippi on January 29, 1990, and would last for two weeks. On federal charges of extortion by mail, perjury and conspiracy to kidnap. Both the paralegal and his ex-girlfriend were told they would face no prosecution if they testified truthfully. It was revealed that by July 1988, papers had been filed by school pictures to evict Wynn from the apartment he lived in and the office he worked from. The prosecution said that the closer the eviction date came, the more determined he was to carry out the plan. The paralegal had taken four trips to Jackson. Wynn told him to watch the Heron house and take photographs. The paralegal admitted he had fabricated the alibi of the bar and the sex worker to protect Wynn, but said he knew nothing of and played no part in the kidnapping. The jury deliberated for three hours and 40 minutes before they returned their verdict. Newton Alfred Wynn was found guilty on all three counts. When the jury's verdict came back, Wynn gave a slight smile and said, What is there to say? He was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in prison. Her family and loved ones cried as the verdict was read out. Her son said, We're informed that the investigation into whatever happened to my mother is continuing, and on that basis, we're very pleased with the result reached today. Wynne's sister said, It's not always the right verdict. I don't think he's guilty. He's not that kind of person. Prosecutor James Tucker said it could not be proven that Wynne had actually been the one to commit the abduction, but they were sure he had played a part in the plot. Wynne would appeal his conviction... It went before the US Court of Appeals, but was flatly denied. Wynne would be released in April 2006, but maintained he had nothing to do with the kidnapping of Annie Laurie Heron, nor the extortion plot against her husband. Newton Alfred Wynne died in 2012. Two years after the disappearance of his wife, Robert Heron sadly died in November 1990 at the age of 73, following a heart attack. He died without ever finding out what had happened to his beloved wife. 29 years ago today, the Jackson socialite was kidnapped from her home in the upscale Woodland Hills neighborhood. Drops of blood were found and a ransom note. Time was critical. Annie Laurie Heron was frail and required daily medication. The Jackson media agreed to a 24-hour blackout in order to let law enforcement do their job. Then, the next day, Jackson Mayor Dale Danks held a news conference announcing the shocking kidnapping. The family was desperate for answers. It's been our sincere desire from the very beginning, from the, the moment of the kidnapping, that we do everything possible to comply with these demands. We want mother back. And yet we had to have the reality that this was definitely a kidnapping with wrongful intent and purpose. The note was interesting from the standpoint that 
I felt like Dr. Galvez, who was a forensic psychiatrist, would be able to at least look at the note, analyze it as best he could to determine what sort of character are we dealing with here? There were so many parts of that story that were unbelievable. What, who would in their right mind go to an airport, dye their hair in the bathroom to mail a letter? New Alfred Wynn was represented by Jackson attorney John Coletti. Uh, you had New Orleans, you had masks, you had uh, disguises, you had uh, psychic, uh, missing pills. Uh, just a lot of strange situations. Wynn was found guilty of plotting the vengeful abduction of the Jackson millionaire's wife. It was a case of circumstantial evidence all the way around, and as you put it, yes, it was a mystery. Again, he never, ever even alluded to or by inference said, you know, I did it or I'm sorry or maybe they need to look over here. I mean, again, it was a strange case. Annie Laurie Heron was declared legally dead in 1991. A memorial bench was put up by her husband's grave in Lakewood Memorial Park. Robert Jr. spoke about the complex emotions they were all dealing with as a result of his mother's abduction. We've had a terrible loss. I think all along there has been a real mix of sadness and anger. It has been nearly 34 years since Annie Laurie Heron disappeared. She has never been found, and her whereabouts remain unknown. It is the hope of her family that she will one day be found, and they will finally have some comfort in knowing her fate, and being able to lay her to rest. If you have any information relating to the disappearance or whereabouts of Annie Laurie Heron, please contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Jackson, Mississippi Division.